0: At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now would appropriate in the perfect time. What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com/tfs. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and 5 free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com/tfs as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com/tfs. That's not just the sound of that first sip of morning joe. Hey, boys and girls, this is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where it is usually my job to interview world-class performers, tease out their habits, routines, favorite books, et cetera, for you to test in your own life. Use, experiment with this episode, though, is a format that we've visited a few times, and it is an in-between episode where I answer your most popular questions, which have been submitted via Facebook, Twitter, and other aspects of the interwebs, and then upvoted. So, we're going to hit a few of those, and so you know how I select these. I go through and I look at questions that, A, I can answer in a few minutes or less, B, that will help more than the person asking, and C, that will not immediately be irrelevant because I'm doing this in a podcast format where thousands or tens of thousands of people are listening. So, I will avoid questions like, if you had $100 in six months, how would you turn it into $10,000 or $100,000, et cetera, et cetera? Or if there were one particular home business opportunity where I could make additional per month, what would you suggest? Now, if there were a magical answer to any of those, A, keep in mind, if it were something like, how do you turn $100 into $100,000, I would use that information for myself, not to be a selfish prick, but that would be case A, and that belies an informational advantage, which is also the issue with the second aspect. And that is, if I were to give you a piece of information, or if Barons were to give you a piece of information, and you were to make investment decisions or business decisions based on that, you now have a very crowded bet. You have 10,000 or 100,000 or a million other people who just got the exact same piece of advice, and so it ceases to be very useful, at least advantageous. Alright, so let's jump into it. First question is, is from uh, Sean Clayton on Facebook. Can you talk about intermittent fasting and slow carb? Is it okay to skip breakfast and get 30 grams of protein at lunch instead of within 30 minutes of waking? So there are a few ways to think of this question. The short answer is you should be getting regular DEXA scans or body composition analysis and you can track how your body fat, how your muscle mass responds to different types of testing. So, That which gets measured gets managed, and you have to measure. Uh, The other metrics that you might use are energy level and other 0 to 10 kind of subjective scales. So, yes, you can absolutely do it. I think that it's important to realize uh, well, I'll make a a few observations. The first is that uh, the people who practice intermittent fasting who seem to do well with it uh, and get body recomp I'm assuming that's one of the main goals uh, to really accelerate are generally not just skipping breakfast. They are they are having one primary meal or window of say four hours of eating around dinner time. Furthermore, they're doing that after some type of weight training. So they're skipping breakfast, they're skipping lunch, they're doing some type of weight training, and then they're eating dinner uh, or having a few hours of uh, feeding window. Okay. So that's point number one just as an observation. The second point I would make is that very often, and people are going to get their panties in a twist about this, but many of those people who are pushing intermittent fasting are doing two things. They are consuming a lot of stimulants, that could be caffeine, it could take other forms, and very often using... Uh, and um, these are some of the figureheads, and I know this for a fact, uh, using anabolic steroids such as Dianabol, which are oral, and very nicely curb appetite. Okay, So you need to dig very deeply to make sure that the person you are emulating is following a protocol you are willing to follow. In my case, for the last, I'd say, 10 days, I've been experimenting with exactly what I mentioned first, which is, fasting until dinner, having a primary meal after a resistance training workout. But you have to test it. And I will say that very frequently what I find is, if you're trying to go from a standard American diet or a diet that's completely out of control and you haven't developed the routines and default meals for a better diet, like slow carb, you're better off doing that first before experimenting with a lot of fancy fasting. Uh, and that tends to deliver better results kind of per capita if we're looking at the success rate the adherence per 100 or 1000 people i think slow carb is higher which is also why i recommend using that as a gateway drug so to speak into more regimented and controlled forms of eating before someone go to ketogenic diet or ketosis. Generally speaking, I recommend slow-carb first for that reason. That would also apply to strict veganism or strict paleo. The abandonment rate is going to be extremely high per 100, per 1,000 people if you're trying to go to the extreme end of uh, any of these ranges. And so, I recommend something like slow-carb or an alternative, whatever it might be, as step one. Uh, There's no huge rush. And I think that People tend to abandon the good system they'll follow in search of the perfect system that they will quit. And that is a mistake. So long answer, but uh, intermittent fasting, fascinated by it. I do a lot of fasting of different types. You can read all about that uh, in Tools of Titans or uh, listen to the conversation between myself and Dom D'Agostino about this very well published researcher. Uh, but is it okay to skip breakfast and get 30 grams of protein at lunch? Sure. You just need to test what works for you. And I would say, on average, for most people, getting the not just the protein, but also the fiber that comes with, say, lentils or legumes is going to deliver the best bang for the buck. Okay. Next question. This is from Jason Land. How do you deal with compassion when living a stoic lifestyle? I'm struggling with finding the balance of feeling empathy while remaining emotionally neutral, as talked about via Seneca. All right. So, I don't think that stoicism is mutually exclusive with compassion at all, Uh, and depends on which writing, which teachings you have studied. But I will read you one quote from Marcus Aurelius. This is from Meditations, which I read every morning during my last book launch. And this was to prime me to have greater empathy throughout the day, which would not just, I suppose, benefit me from a altruistic standpoint, that wasn't the practical consideration. It was really making myself less reactive. If I can be non-reactive and I would take that to be the objective, at least in my mind, more so than being emotionally neutral, I do think those are two different things, Uh, you can consider sort of aggressive responses or strong reactions without acting on them impulsively. All right. To that point, I read this quote. This is from Marcus Aurelius. And I'll read the whole thing. It'll only take about 20, 30 seconds. When you wake up in the morning, tell yourself, the people I deal with today will be meddling, ungrateful, arrogant, dishonest, jealous, and surly. They are like this because they can't tell good from evil. But I've seen the beauty of good and the ugliness of evil and have recognized that the wrongdoer has a nature related to my own, not of the same blood and birth, but of the same mind and possessing a share of the divine." And so none of them can hurt me. No one can implicate me in ugliness, nor can I feel angry at my relative or hate him. We were born to work together like feet, hands, and eyes, like the two rows of teeth, upper and lower. To obstruct each other is unnatural. To feel anger at someone, to turn your back on him, these are unnatural. And uh, there you have it. And there are many other... I would say excerpts like that, whether from Marcus Aurelius, Seneca, Epictetus, or otherwise. Uh, So that is my response to the perhaps, and this is a common, it's not unique uh, to this gentleman who asked the question, uh, false dichotomy, as Matt Mullenweg would say, uh, that is easy to trap yourself within. If someone says you can choose A or B, always look for C or ask why there isn't a C. And you will very often find more than that. And in this same thread, Jason added, I'd like to hear how Tim handles friends or family going through an emotional situation. Short answer to that is I would suggest checking out Nonviolent Communication and Neil Strauss. So you can Google both, Neil Strauss, STA. R-A-U-S-S. Let's try the spelling today. Not so strong. I uh, could get you uh, started at least with that. Although some of his stories, I don't know if this applies here, are not suitable for work. So be forewarned. All right. Next is from Hendrix Vieira. Uh, do you ever think about asking high performers what their rooms look like, clean or dirty? That's part one. Uh, I haven't, but I'd be open to it. Next is how do you deal with the M- but the wise portion of your teaching. An example, and this is what I'll answer, working hard towards a goal and then finding out it doesn't bring the right satisfaction you had thought. So there are a few things. Uh, I would say, A, being aware of the latter. That is, that what you're putting on a pedestal as the reward that will redeem all of the effort or pain or failure or saving or being in a job that you don't like, whatever it might be. Almost inevitably, Will not bring the right satisfaction or, or as much satisfaction as you have thought. And this has been written about in a great book called Stumbling on Happiness. Might be Stumbling Upon, but I think it's Stumbling on Happiness by Daniel Gilbert, who's a professor at Harvard. And has been uh, discussed also in the four-hour work week. I talk about mini retirements precisely for this reason. If you are contemplating dedicating 5, 10, 20 years of your life to a given career, a given track, the partner fast lane, whatever it might be, getting tenured, then perhaps you should, at the very least, test drive what the retirement in mind looks like. For instance, if you imagine yourself sailing on a boat around the world for the rest of your life, or the Caribbean, or the Dalmatian coast, whatever it might be, then it would make sense that you allocate and really put a lot of planning into setting aside time and uh, negotiating for time off, whatever it might be, so that you can get on a boat, perhaps, for at least three days, ideally a week or two weeks, to test if that is, in fact, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow that you want to chase, and in doing so, live a deferred life plan of one uh, form or another. Stumbling on Happiness is a very good read to that end. And what I've realized for myself, this came after reading a book called Spend Happier, which I'd give a 7 out of 10. There are parts of it that I don't like. But the the general idea being, uh, at least one facet of it, that the anticipation is the reward. So I am going to schedule multiple things each year, ideally two extended trips. I talked about this in the last podcast episode. Two extended trips with family or friends of several weeks each That allow me, say, in any given six-month period, to with great anticipation look forward to something. And I found that the anticipation is the reward. It's really ninety percent of the gift to other people or to yourself. And that is where I will stop that thought. So there you have it. All right, next is Daniel Newland Wee, I suppose it is. 21 upvotes. We spend a lot of time talking about success, but how about discussing tactics for rebounding from failure? Have you ever dedicated a tremendous amount of time and resources to something that didn't pan out? Short answer, yes. Many, many times. How do you choose your next direction and what enabled you to succeed once you took that step? All right. In terms of next directions and things of that type, uh, I think that fear-setting is an exercise. and You guys can look it up. It'll pop right up. My name in fear-setting is very useful not for not only for engaging with new ventures or having uncomfortable conversations or making decisions that you've put off, but also rebounding from uh, mistakes, accidents, and what you might consider failure. The second, and I would encourage you to read, you could certainly look up systems versus goals or losers have goals and the name Scott Adams. Scott Adams, the creator of Dilbert, has written a lot about this in, in his book uh, as well, his latest book. But the basic idea is that if you are engaging and focusing on systems thinking, and I'm going to simplify this here, you are choosing, and I do this all the time, I'm choosing projects, and long-term listeners will know that I don't have five- or ten-year plans. I generally look at my life as six-month projects and two-week experiments within those projects. And I choose those six-month projects in such a way that even if they fail by the most objective metrics we might use, uh, or in the eyes of those people who see me attempt a given project, that I develop relationships and skills that persist past that project. This is very, very critical. So whether a project fails or not, I can succeed regardless because I am accumulating skills and relationships that... Transcend and last uh, much longer than the project itself, and if you do that, then just via snowball effect of skills and relationships over time you will succeed on a, meta, on, a on a meta level and uh, Very often, when I ask my my guests on the podcast what their favorite failure is what a their favorite failure meaning a failure that actually sowed the seeds for later huge success they look back and almost always either accidentally or on purpose they chose projects that helped them develop relationships and skills that applied later and if you're always looking at your selection of projects or opportunities through that lens then you can do very well and that would uh, I'll come back to this, but that would also relate to Derek Sivers, who's a very incredible entrepreneur and philosophically-minded fellow. Uh, I would highly recommend anyone who hasn't heard my episodes with him listen to all of my episodes with Derek Sivers in order. Uh, but he would say, and this is one of his directives, when he's, he's distilled down hundreds of books to these single lines that are rules for his life, and one of them is, and I'm pretty sure I'm getting this right, the best option is the one that creates more options and systems thinking as scott adams define it defines it is very much compatible with that okay next one is todd almiller uh, and this got cut off, but I will do my best here. If you wanted to improve your life exponentially within one month in health, knowledge, and behavior, first, what are the top three items you would buy that are all within $150 for each area you want to change? Second, then I got cut off. Uh, all right, so this is generally the question that I dislike asking, this type of question, because it's t- looking for a miracle answer in any. Uh, in my mind, unreasonably short period of time. However, I'm going to give you an answer because uh, exponentially probably doesn't apply here, but you never know. It could. Health, knowledge, and behavior. All right. So, here's what I would do. Uh, If we're talking about a month, I'm going to expand it to a quarter within three months, but could, could happen within a month. A lot of connective tissue changes take a hell of a lot longer than that, but let's go with it. All right. So, $150 in three categories. Health, Knowledge and behavior. So within health, I would buy two kettlebells. And, uh, Taj, I'm assuming you're a male, but it doesn't really matter that much. Um, Assuming you're not in terrible, terrible, terrible shape, you would get 135 pound kettlebell and 153 pound kettlebell. And you would focus on two handed swings and maybe goblet squats and a few other things. But just to keep it simple, because goblet squats also bring up all sorts of silly controversy, uh, let's focus on a two-handed swing. That's it. And you can look at, uh, if you search my name and kettlebell swing, generally looking at two or three maximum swinging workouts per week in which you do a total of about 75 reps. And you can get a million different recommendations for how to do this that has worked for thousands of my fans and is one of my defaults when i am time starved but eager to stay in shape or get in better shape kettlebell swings two handed high rep sets and uh, you can google that so two kettlebells less than 150 bucks you're done and if for whatever reason those are too expensive you can look up t bar kettlebell letter t letter t tbell kettle, kettlebell which You allows you to use about uh, I'd say ten dollars to with basic plumbing supplies you get at Home Depot or elsewhere Lowe's to build a plate loaded kettlebell. Then you have to buy the plates, uh, which generally are about a dollar a pound, let's say. And there you have your adjustable weight kettlebell. All right, next we have behavior. One hundred and fifty bucks. What would I do? I would apply that one hundred and fifty dollars to something like coach.me, stick.com, S-T-I-C-K-K.com, or something like dietbet.com. Now, why is that? It's because most people don't, don't fail to change their behavior because they don't understand in some abstract way the benefits. It's because they have insufficient incentives. You need a sufficient reward or punishment If you don't change this behavior, you should also start very, very small. You can look up B.J. Fogg, F-O-G-G, for that. But suffice to say, I've talked about this before, but I would apply the $150 to a betting pool where you will have extreme loss aversion if if you do not reach your particular goal, which is related to a changed behavior. And I would utilize, when possible, embarrassment, humiliation, if you can, uh, or guilt. These are all very useful emotions if channeled and applied in the right way. For instance, having an anti-charity on stick where the money goes into escrow. And unless you hit your goal, which is verified by judges that you can use on the platform, then your money goes to a nonprofit that you would rather nuke than donate money to. And I've had, say, Jewish friends do this with the American Nazi Party as an example. And very, very powerful. All right, next we have knowledge. I would say uh, I'm gonna keep this short, buy tools of Titans and then spend the remaining whatever it is, $130 on uh, additional incentives, meaning betting or coach.me, stick.com, etc. All right, next we have uh, Ben Stein. So this is tangentially or I would say partially related to a question that came up a lot related to Lyme disease. So here we go. Can you talk about the use of science versus experience? And uh, I don't think those are mutually independent. Uh, I think that they can be one and the same, but let's come back. To Ben, have you ever found yourself in a situation where a method or technique works well, but there's no science that can thoroughly explain or back up your results? Uh, Your answer could be related to anything, but my question comes from thinking about your fitness-related shows, which I really enjoy, and the loads of self-experimentation that you've done. Thanks for your time." Uh, Okay. And there were a bunch of questions about Lyme, so I'll answer that here because it's an example. So, to reiterate, have you ever found yourself in a situation where a method or technique works well, but there's no science that can thoroughly explain or back up your results? Uh, Yes and no. So, I would say that just because you lack the scientific means Uh, or data to explain something does not mean that they can't be explained scientifically. We may just lack the tools, data sets, experimental findings to explain it. Uh, But in the case of, say, Lyme disease, I don't know why exactly ketosis and going into ketosis for an extended period, two to four weeks, let's say, after my rounds of doxycycline and so on, seemed to remove all of my, at least cognitive symptoms, as well as for that matter, joint uh, pain-related uh, issues associated with Lyme disease. I don't have a fantastic explanation. Now, There, I have hypotheses. All right, So you can still apply the scientific method and scientific thinking to uh, these types of situations. And they, they would include p- uh, plausible mechanisms or explanations that I can't prove at this point in time, but that might explain it, right? So, we could look at, for instance, at least in the case of the joints, ketones have a can have a profound anti-inflammatory effect. All right, well, maybe that explains why my knees went from being the size of uh you know, bloated softballs to back to normal, let's say, right? That could be one. Uh, second could be the diuretic effect of a ketogenic diet when you remove carbohydrates. All right. That could be that could be a secondary factor. Uh, then cognitively speaking, maybe, just maybe, and I have no idea, but the the changes were so profound and so immediate as soon as I hit, say 1.5 to 1.5 millimolars. That's a measurement of beta-hydroxybutyrate, a type of ketone body in the blood, which you can measure with something called the Precision Extra, X-T-R-A from Abbott Labs. The change was so immediate that leads me to think, maybe, much like Alzheimer's is sometimes thought of as brain diabetes, and uh, the reason being that the, the brain, brain's ability to metabolize and utilize glucose is very severely impacted. Perhaps Lyme disease in some fashion affects glucose metabolism, carbohydrate metabolism, and therefore, much like when you, in some cases, supplement Alzheimer's patients with, say, coconut oil or MCT oil or exogenous ketones, meaning supplemental ketones, you see a dramatic change in their cognitive ability for the better. Uh, maybe that is the answer, that uh, the, my, I was, was not able to use glucose effectively for whatever reason and could be mitochondrial dysfunction or otherwise, and therefore, when I introduced... Ketones. In the case of, in my case, going on a ketogenic diet and pulling it from my diet and body fat, uh, my brain was able to use this alternate fuel source. Okay, so you you can see that, and I highly, highly recommend either reading the book Bad Science by Ben Goldacre, who's a doctor, which teaches you how to not only not get tricked by bad science but also think scientifically, uh, or. You could read a few of the excerpts that I put at the back of the 4-Hour Body. And you could check that out, which uh, were pulled with permission from Bad Science and talk about how to not only read science well, but think about science. Not as something that requires a white lab coat, but just requires proper sets of questions and a thinking framework. All right. Next, uh, Eric Andrews, and uh, I was looking for women guys, but there just are not not that many in the most top voted here, which I think is a byproduct of my audience being eighty five or so percent male. But let's actually jump to a female one here, which is decently up upvoted, but I don't know if I'll have a good answer for it. Andrea Jana Schaefer, do you find intimacy difficult? Do high performer personality types find it harder to accept the flaws in themselves and others? Uh, so let me answer those first. Do I find intimacy difficult? Uh, I don't find intimacy difficult per se across the board. There are aspects of it, however, which is your second question that do relate. So, for instance, you know, do high-perform personality types find it harder to accept the flaws in themselves and, ans- and others? I think the answer is yes. So that would be, I think, a very straightforward answer. Uh, next part of it: What are some of the drawbacks of being a high performer compared to the more average bloke? Or last, I think that dissatisfaction generally and lack of ability to appreciate the small things is a huge drawback and handicap when it relates to type A-driven personalities, which is why I suggest things like the 5-Minute Journal and Morning Pages, as well as stuff like the Jar of Awesome, which you can Google, I'm sure it'll pop right up, that help you to train that in a systematic way. Next question is Eric Andrews. How do you feel about random chance and statistics when it comes to all of these, quote, high performers, end quote, you talk with? You must know how many millions of others are sincerely trying their hardest to accomplish what all these businessmen and other people have accomplished in their lives, but most will not get even close simply because they did not get lucky." Thoughts. I do have thoughts on this, and let me start with a reading. This is a slightly edited version, I think, of the... Commencement. It's not really a commencement. It's a talk given at Columbia University in 1984 by Warren Buffett commemorating the 50th anniversary of security analysis, which is a dense read, but uh, certainly viewed as the Bible of value investing by a lot of folks, written by Benjamin Graham and David Dodd, D-O-D-D. That was later popularized with the ideas there and were popularized in The Intelligent Investor, another book. So let's jump into that, and I'm going to have to scan a little bit because the font is small. Now, you'll be missing a little bit of context, but you'll get the idea pretty quickly. And For those who are looking for great MBA at uh, bargain basement prices, you should find the annual letters from Warren Buffett to the Berkshire Hathaway shareholders. There's a lot of gold, but here we go. Before we begin this examination, this is Buffett speaking. I would like you to imagine a national coin flipping contest. Let's assume we get 225 million Americans, that's the population at the time, up tomorrow morning and we ask them all to wager a dollar. They go out in the morning at sunrise and they all call the flip of a coin. If they call correctly, they win a dollar from those who called wrong. Each day, the losers drop out and on the subsequent day, the stakes build as all previous winnings are put on the line. After 10 flips on 10 mornings, there will be approximately 220,000 people in the United States who have correctly called 10 flips in a row. They will each have won. A little over a thousand dollars. Now, this group will probably start getting a little puffed up about this. Human nature, being what it is, they may try to be modest, but at cocktail parties, they will occasionally admit to attractive members of the opposite sex what their technique is and what marvelous insights they bring to the field of flipping. Assuming that the winners are getting the appropriate rewards from the losers, in another ten days, we'll have two hundred and fifteen people who have successfully called their coin flips twenty times in a row. And who, by this exercise, each have turned one dollar into little over one million. Two hundred and twenty five million would have been lost, two hundred and twenty five million would have been won. By then, this group would really lose their heads. They would probably write books on how I turned a dollar into a million in twenty days, working thirty seconds a morning. <laughs> Worse yet, they'll probably start jetting around the country attending seminars on a fishing uh, attending seminars on efficient coin-flipping and tackling skeptical professors with, well, if it can't be done, why are there 215 of us? By then, some business school professor will probably be rude enough to bring up the fact that if 225 million orangutans had engaged in a similar exercise, the results would be the same, or much the same, 215 egotistical orangutans with 20 straight winning flips. I would argue, and this is the key paragraph or two, I would argue, however, that there are some important differences in the examples I'm going to present. And I should say also, as context, this is Tim talking, that uh, Warren Buffett, I believe, was addressing efficient market theory or efficient market theorists with this talk. All right, back to Buffett. For one thing, if A, You'd taken 225 million orangutans distributed roughly as the U.S. population is. If B, 215 winners were left after 20 days, and if C, you found that 40 came from a particular zoo in Omaha, which is where Warren Buffett is based, you'd be pretty sure you were onto something. So you would go out, you would probably go out and ask the zookeeper about what he's feeding them whether they had special exercises, what books they read, and who knows what else. That is, if you found any really extraordinary concentrations of success, you might want to see if you could identify concentrations of unusual characteristics that might be causal factors. Okay. I'll read one more. Scientific inquiry naturally follows such a pattern. If you're trying to analyze possible causes of a rare type of cancer with, say, 1,500 cases a year in the United States, and you found that 400 of them occurred in some little mining town in Montana, you would get very interested in the water there or the occupation of those afflicted or other variables. You know it's not random chance that 400 come from a small area. You would not necessarily know the causal factors, but you'd know where to search. All right, Now, He goes into other examples and it's a great read, but I'm not going to give you the whole thing. The point I wanted to make is that luck, chance, these are factors in everyday life. These are factors in the lives of every person, but I don't think that it is as easy to dismiss success as pure luck as some might believe. And there are a few things. And of course, what we're talking about in the Buffett example, and uh, there there are other principles at work here. But survivorship bias, survivorship bias, would also uh, be illustrated through, for instance, looking at the ads that run in something like a Barron's, and you have these amazing mutual funds that have performed extremely well. And what is not often pointed out is that the mutual funds that did something approximating the same thing. But didn't pick in this case, luckily, let's just say don't have either no longer exist or don't have the money to advertise in barons, so you're only getting a survivorship bias uh, selection of these mutual funds, and that poses all sorts of problems now. <clears throat> uh when you're looking however at concentrations of success which is what, what one of the things that I do I might look at say silicon valley versus other places in the united states for certain types of anomalies and those could be what we call unicorns in the startup world or otherwise and what I'm most frequently looking for are a <clears throat> concentrations of success and then replicable anomaly what does that mean that means that if i find a strength coach let's just say, like a Mark Bell at Super Training in Northern California, or a Barry Ross in Los Angeles who's trained a number of world champions, including Allison Felix, who went from high school track to professional track directly, I believe. I want to know not only if they have incredible results themselves, say, as an athlete or a former athlete, but have they been able to replicate those incredible results? And. Furthermore, you have to distinguish between babysitting mutants, i.e., if you have a successful gym, much like if you are Warren Buffett in Omaha, you're going to attract prodigious talent Uh, who may have succeeded without your intervention, method, or help, regardless. and You want to separate those people out. For instance, you have celebrity trainers, uh, or I should say, well-known trainers who are very good at simply recruiting already incredible athletes to be their clients, and then they take credit six months later when they do all sorts of amazing things, versus those who are able to take someone from, say, zero to 60 very quickly, or help someone uh, steepen the learning curve most dramatically from point zero to six months later. Now, the uh, there are examples of this, and you could you could make the counter arguments certainly. But if you look at say the PayPal mafia, if you look at uh, there there are other examples of these concentrations of success where people then go from once you're, look, once you're lucky to twice you're good to three times you're incredible. And I am doing my best to use these filters to study those uh, to whom it is incredibly difficult to attribute their success solely to luck. And uh, I'll leave it at that. Luck is a factor, but I, I, I would suspect that successful people tend to under-appreciate the value of luck, and unsuccessful people tend to overappreciate the value of luck. Uh, and the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. Alright, there we go. Next is Bill Worthington. And here we go. Tim. This may be a huge question and require some thought, but I was wondering how someone that is bound to a contract, i.e. active duty military, implement habits and tactics associated with the four-hour work week. I love the notion of mini-retirements, but that doesn't work for folks on active duty in law enforcement or the fire service. How would you recommend 10 xing a life and build passive income for someone that is not in a position to become an entrepreneur? Thank you for your time and consideration. All right. Now, I'm going to I chose this question, was upvoted, number one, but number two, because I wanted to point out there are a few embedded assumptions in this question that I would not let pass without some examination. So The first is that, for instance, many retirements can't be used by people on active duty. Now, if you're on 24-7, 365 active duty, that may be true, but frequently, uh, there are exceptions to this, whether it's in law enforcement, fire service, or otherwise. So I would study those exceptions, whether or not it's in your state, out of your state. Uh, Try to find the anomalies and study those anomalies, which is exactly what I do the edge cases. If there is even one exception, then you should look at that exception. If there are five or ten or twenty, then you should certainly look at the commonalities across those. But the main points I wanted to respond with, how would you recommend 10xing a life, building passive income, et cetera? Passive income, we're not going to get into right now in depth, but I will say that do not assume that your choices are fully employed or full-time employed or full time entrepreneur. This is a very common binary, artificially binary selection that people make. And it leads them to do things that I think are very often irresponsible, not always, but very often irresponsible, where they will have all sorts of financial obligations. They'll quit their nine to five job and then try to learn to swim when they're thrown into the deep end and generate income through entrepreneurship. That is not the approach I recommend. Typically, I would recommend doing some form of moonlighting, meaning using your evenings and weekends while you have your job to test different types of business concepts, business models, and so on, muses, if you will, for those who've read the four hour work week. And once you have demonstrated some traction, more specifically, people not just willing to buy, but handing their cash in some form over to you to buy your service or product. Only then, once you have supplanted your current income in some respect or supplemented it in such a way that you can take that jump with a high degree of confidence that it will succeed, then and only then should you consider potentially the jump to full-time entrepreneurship. And uh, that's point number one. The second is that, uh, coming back to Derek Sivers, you know the best option is the one that creates more options and that can be applied in the case of this moonlighting that i discussed and many others but the the tactics and habits from the four hour work week, apply to a lot more than you would expect. Certainly, you can take some of the high level frameworks or principles like the 80 20 analysis and apply that to what you do. I have many friends who are uh, either active military or were active military at the time that they read the four hour work week who are able to apply 80 20 analysis, Parkinson's law, and so on to what they did. And uh, I would recommend as a Compliment to the four hour work week. And this might seem odd, but extreme ownership by Jocko Willink, retired Navy SEAL commander whose uh, first ever public interview was on this podcast. Uh, so I will leave it at that. Next up, and I apologize for the noise in the background, guys. It's an, I'm in a very cold house in the Pacific Northwest, and that's the heater. All right. Next question we have is I'm going to get this name incorrect, probably. The uh, hero, that's with ND, I'm guessing the N is silent. S. Basimia. Uh, let's see, I'll read this quickly. What are your thoughts on maximizing muscle growth versus optimizing the body as it relates to age? Specifically, with research showing that to maximize muscle growth, one needs to maximize mTOR activation. And for those people wondering what mTOR is, mechanistic target of rapamycin, generally. Some people say mammalian, but David Sabatini, who is shortlisted for the Nobel Prize, who's on this podcast, we did a long talk about mTOR. Uh, all right, so. Back to the question. I'll rewind. Specifically with research showing that to maximize muscle growth, one needs to maximize mTOR activation, but with research now suggesting from a few MDs that mTOR activation is correlated with speeding up the aging process by advancing cell turnover rate, as well as speeding up development of cancerous cells? Question mark In other words, training with the goal of hypertrophy can be bad in the long run as you get older. It's clear. This is a good question. It comes up a lot. That's why I'm reading the entire thing. It's clear that training as an athlete while giving great performance doesn't necessarily translate to longevity. But what are your thoughts on an optimal style of training that would promote both longevity and retaining the attributes you lose when you age—strength, flexibility, etc.? When factoring types of training like running, Olympic powerlifting, CrossFit, gymnastics, swimming, etc.? Question mark. All right. This is a very, very big question. I will say, much like. Dr. Dominic D'Agostino has observed in a number of his episodes on this podcast. And if you haven't heard his stuff, I would recommend everybody listen to at least the first episode I did with Dominic D'Agostino. And by the way, he's not just a scientist. I mentioned this at the beginning, but he's done... 500 pound deadlift for 10 repetitions after a seven day fast. So he's not only a very well published researcher, but he is a beast of an athlete. Uh, he would be the first to point out that the goals of hypertrophy and muscle gain are generally, let's call them, the inverse of what you would want to do for longevity, at least based on the data that we currently have. So, if you are trying to, as you pointed out, I'm going to say hero, if you are trying to improve both longevity while retaining the attributes you lose when you age, strength, flexibility, etc., I would focus on strength over hypertrophy. And mobility, certainly, as defined by Coach Summer, the former national gymnastics team coach, would be the ability to exhibit, unlike flexibility. You can have passive flexibility. Mobility would be the ability to demonstrate strength at the end ranges of your range of motion for, say, a pike stretch, right? Reaching down and touching your toes with your legs completely straightened together, something like that. Uh, I don't view that as, uh, as far as I know, in any way. Uh, conflicting with longevity practice. So, I would focus on strength over hypertrophy. So, you're looking at developing relative strength, maximal strength over muscle size. And there are many different ways to do this. You could do it with uh, something like the Barry Ross protocol that I describe in Effortless Superhuman, chapter of 4-Hour Body, which I also talk about in Tools of Titans at one point. It is a deadlift-based protocol, pulling to the knees, dropping, so no lowering, no eccentrics. This is to remove or minimize the likelihood of hamstring injury. And you're doing two to three reps of very high weights with a bit of plyometrics and a long rest in between sets. Two to three work sets per workout generally of at least the deadlift. And this can produce phenomenal strength gains. I mean, we're talking in some subjects 80 to 100 pound-plus improvements in, say, three-rep max over the span of three to four months. And these are not purely untrained subjects, I should I should note. They're not also not national champion powerlifters, but somewhere in between, with very frequently less than ten pounds of muscle mass gain. So you, you, the the return on investment for strength compared to the increase in hypertrophy is really astonishing. So I would say strength over hypertrophy. Strength can also be developed with gymnastic strength training GST along the lines of coach Summer SOMMER and so if you're interested in that I would certainly listen to the uh, two episodes, in fact, of this podcast. If you're, if you're interested in strength over hypertrophy, I would li- listen to the Coach Summer episode, S-O-M-M-E-R, which is one of the most popular of the entire podcast, more than a million downloads, certainly, by far. And Pavel Tatsulin, so P-A-V-E-L. I would listen to his first and second episodes on the podcast. And you could offset, potentially, some of the... Uh, the mTOR activation with intermittent fasting and what you might call purge fasts, which are these three or four times per year, five-day or longer fasts that uh, Dominic Dagstino and I've talked about. And the longest chapter in Tools of Titans talks about his his thoughts, my thoughts, my schedule, etc., as it relates to fasts. So I'm not going to belabor it here. But that is my current take, and that is actually the mix that I am currently using, all those things I just mentioned. Do not do extended fasts or fasts of any type without medical supervision, boys and girls. So, don't be dumb and kill yourself. Next, we have Emma Finley. All right, this is a really good question that comes up a lot with type A personalities. Emma Finley, uh, who has a cool thumbnail photo also, looks like a dancer perhaps. How do you balance productivity slash achievement with relaxation and what does relaxing look like to you? Relaxing in quotation marks, such a type A way to phrase it. All right. How do you balance productivity achievement with relaxation and what does relaxing look like to you? I personally have trouble actually relaxing in the little downtime I find for myself and I'm constantly taking on so much that all seems important to me. So I wonder how you manage that in your time so you aren't constantly overworked or tensed. I'm going to dissect this a little bit, and much like when I'm writing, one of my predispositions that I try to fix when I edit is having a single sentence that tries to do too much. When you want to ask yourself or other people questions, make sure your question isn't trying to do too much. In this case, we have quite a few things embedded all right so i'm gonna i'm gonna tease out this a little bit. I personally have trouble actually relaxing the little downtime I find for myself, part one, and I'm constantly taking on so much that all seems important to me. Those I think are related but not the same. so I constantly take on so much that all seems important to me. Those are also two different things: taking on a lot and all seeming important. I would say number one if you don't have if you feel like you don't have time, you don't have clear priorities, and the book I would recommend you read which is short, is The Effective Executive by Peter Drucker, probably the best book. I've ever read are certainly top three for effectiveness, which is much more efficient, much more important. Excuse me, than being efficient. So, if effectiveness is doing the right things. Efficiency is doing things the right way. But doing something well does not make it important. And uh, it's very critical that you focus on the trivial. The <laughs> oh my god, let's have some more caffeine, Ferris. You focus on the critical few and not the trivial many. So, the effective executive. Number one, by Peter Drucker, you should read and reread and reread and reread. That's number one. Uh, Number two is that I would encourage you as uh, a driven person, a type A personality, to replace the label relaxing or relaxation with recovery. So you don't view it as wasted time, which it is not. So much like in strength training, where I'm talking about taking five to six minutes or more, 10 minutes in some cases, rest in between maximal work sets. Why am I doing that? I'm doing that because I need to regenerate creatine phosphate and blah, 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 blah. There are all sorts of systems that need to recover uh, and ideally hypercompensate. So what does that mean? Hypercompensate means that, let's say you train, you push yourself, to a near breaking point. There are different ways to train, of course. Then you take a sufficient period of time off so that your body hypercompensates because the body doesn't adapt to stress as perfectly. That would be a very dangerous way for us to evolve and to adapt. You hypercompensate with the expectation that the next stressor could be greater than the last. So, if you strain yourself lifting 100 pounds, you get to near failure or failure, then next time around, if you wait sufficiently to recover, then you should be able to lift, say, 105 or 110 pounds. This applies to your endocrine system. This applies to neurotransmitters in your brain. This applies to a lot more than strength training. It applies to everything. Uh, You have finite biological resources to work with, and your body has to regenerate these things. So, think of relaxing as recovery. What might that look like? If you really want to drive yourself crazy, <laughs> and uh, Dr. Dan Engel talked about this, if you're super type A, you could try flotation tanks, which is uh, c- can be thought of in some cases as a legal alternative to psychedelic dosing or certainly microdosing. And you could look into different ways that flotation tanks are used. Joe Rogan, of course, is a big proponent of this. And uh, that is option one. Option two would be doing something completely, in your mind, probably unproductive, but in my experience, very helpful for, say, insomnia and other things, is reading fiction. And if that makes you crazy, uh, I think it indicates. Uh, in corresponding sort of amplitude and importance that you should try it and uh, i would suggest zorba the greek specifically if that is too long you could try short stories you might consider the literature of ideas or good science fiction like ted chang c h i a n g and i believe it's stories of your life or story of your life and others which is a great collection of short stories now i'd read those before bed so try those. But think of relaxing instead of relaxing since that implies almost to people who are used to obsessing on goals, wasting time. Think of relaxing as recovery because it very much is. Next question is by Jasky Singh. For people looking to break through the noise with their own products or product out of all of the various marketing strategies you've tried over the years for all of your books... What one would you say has helped you cut through the noise more than any other? What one could people replicate who don't have a large audience? Let's dive into that. I would say a few things here. So the question is, breaking through the noise for a product and building a large customer base slash audience. That's how I'm going to translate this and there are a few words i want to i want to underscore here so you said out of all the various marketing strategies which has helped me the most i'm going to answer this differently and in fact argue that marketing is not where to focus if you want to break through the noise with your own product or products that uh, i separate marketing and positioning and we're going to talk about positioning i think positioning is more important i would additionally say you asked of all of your books I would expand that because I've worked with 75-plus startups at this point, including some of the fastest growing startups in the world, in their early stages when they had next to no customers or audience per se. I was have been involved with Uber since they had three cars on the street, for instance. And actually, even prior to that, when they were prototyping the user interface and so on. Now, they're ubiquitous. They did not start out that way. And in fact, even something such as Uber was was laughed at in the beginning by a lot of folks who couldn't quite grasp the fact that you can expand a market with your product. You don't have to tackle the defined size of an existing market. Uh, But that is perhaps a separate conversation. All right. So, what tactics, what strategies, what principles have I used most effectively to break through the noise? which one? If I had to choose one, it would be encapsulated in Kevin Kelly's 1,000 True Fans. And he wrote a revised edition of that famous essay, his most popular, I believe, for Tools of Titans, but it can be found on his website now as well, kk.org. So, 1,000 True Fans. And this relates to Positioning and starting small, which Seth Godin in I believe it is our second episode. the second episode of Seth Godin on the podcast talks about this at length so if you were if you were interested in breaking through the noise, I would encourage you to also listen to the Seth Godin episode, uh, both Seth Godin episodes for that matter but the the basic idea is that you should own a category instead of thinking about how to develop a brand. And I'm going to expand on this in a minute. Uh, Another option, there are two options really, more than two certainly, but two that have helped me in terms of resources. The first is the Law of Category chapter in the 22 Immutable Laws of Marketing. If you own Tools of Titans, it's already in there with a slightly uh, edited and updated version. And Blue Ocean Strategy. There's a book called Blue Ocean Strategy. I would say that somewhere between 30 and 40% of it I found very, very helpful. And I read this uh, before the four hour body, four hour chef, and Tools of Titans. So I read that in the period between the publishing of the four hour work week and the rest of the books and found it very helpful. And I will. Uh, hit a few birds with one stone because I do get a lot of questions about branding. How do I create an incredible brand? How do I create an amazing personal brand, which is not something I ever really think of. And I will give you my three rules of branding. And that is a bit tongue-in-cheek since I dislike the word branding, generally speaking. Number one, and we just talked about this a bit. Instead of fixating on the often nebulous brand, in quotation marks, think of how you can, quote, own a category, end quote, in the minds of 1,000 diehard fans who can then act as your strongest marketing force. This is really critical. And much like, uh, I suppose, the GE Way, I believe the book described uh, Jack Welch and how he. Rebuilt GE into the Titan that it became under his leadership. If you can't be number one or number two in a category, so whether that's Uber for X, whatever X is, imported light beer, low cost airline, whatever, you need to find or create another category. My preference has always been to create another category, since by definition you then own it, (laughs) much like lifestyle design for four hour work week and so on. All right. So instead of fixating on the often nebulous brand, think of how you can own a category in the minds of 1,000 die-hard fans who then become your strongest marketing force. Uh, and Number two, don't make a product for everyone. If everyone is your market, no one is your market. If everyone is your customer, no one is your customer. So don't make a product for everyone, or every man, or every woman. It's too broad. Particularly with the first versions of your product or service, it is better to have 1,000 people who love you, even if many hate you. Better to have a thousand people who love you than a hundred thousand who think you're kind of sort of cool. Great to a thousand of these edge case nerds, for instance, uh, and I use that in the the most loving way possible. Beats good to a hundred thousand of anything else, everyone else, every time. So, in a, in a social media and a social sharing driven world, cultivate the intense few instead of the lukewarm many. All right. So, really focus on the intense few. Instead of the lukewarm many, and make a product for those people. You can always expand later. It is very difficult and very painful to go from broad to narrow later. Start narrow, then go broad. Number three, forget branding altogether. (laughs) Forget branding, forget it, forget it, forget it, Uh, at least in the way that uh, the, the very ambiguous way that it is usually used. I would suggest think about consistently over-delivering one or two benefits to your customers, users, fans. Right. So think about consistently over-delivering one or two benefits to your 1,000 true fans. That's it. Branding is a side effect of consistent association. Your brand is what people think of most often when they hear your name, see your logo, whatever it might be. That's it. It's a side effect of consistent association. So, consistently over-deliver one or two benefits to your 1,000 true fans. Don't put the cart before the horse. Put good business first and good brand, whatever that is, (laughs) will follow. It's a side effect. Uh, And... I think that is what we are going to cover for today. So, if you guys would like more of this type of QA, I have quite a few pages left with things I've selected that I can answer. Let me know if you'd like more of these. You can let me know on the Twitter at T T F E R R I S S, on Facebook, Tim Ferris, Instagram, Tim Ferris. Uh, or you can go into the show notes for this episode and every other episode. If you want links to the books and so on that I mentioned in this episode, just go to 4hourworkweek.com forward slash podcast. You can find everything there. And if you have read Tools of Titans, I would love a and very much appreciate a short review. It makes a world of difference. And I do pay attention. I do read reviews. I love to, to hear what you guys have thought of it. So... If you did read the book, please do a review. You can leave a review at Amazon, BNN, uh, wherever you may have found your book. That would mean a lot to me. So thanks for listening, guys. And until next time, keep on experimenting. I'll talk to you soon. of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check it out. Just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com all spelled out and just drop in your email and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it. This episode is brought to you by 99designs. When your business needs a logo, website, business card, thumbnail, or any other design, I recommend checking out 99designs. I use them myself. I've used them for many years. I use them to create book cover prototypes for The 4-Hour Body, which went on to become a number one New York Times bestseller. I've also used them for banner ads, illustrations, and much more. With 99designs, you get a variety of original designs from designers around the world. Give your feedback and then pick your favorite. Your happiness is guaranteed. So check out some of my competitions and designs and some of your competitions and designs from fellow Tim Ferriss show listeners at 99designs.com forward slash Tim. And right now, you can get a free $99 upgrade on your first design. So check it out, 99designs.com forward slash Tim. This episode is brought to you by Trunk Club. There are two types of men out there, you know who you are. Guys who love shopping for clothes, but are short on time, category A. And those of you who hate it, category B. I am in the latter category. My fashion sense is also probably somewhere between homeless and confused with a dash of lazy added in. Either way, you can take heart and I've used Trunk Club now and have found some of my favorite pieces of clothing that make me look a lot better than I would be able to handle on my own. And there are many reasons for that, but you can get clothing that fits perfectly and looks amazing without ever stepping into a store again, thanks to Trunk Club. And they make it very, very easy. And the clothing is hand-picked by a personal stylist, your own personal stylist. All you have to do is go to trunkclub.com forward slash Tim Type in your measurements, share your likes and dislikes. They'll pick your clothes from more than 80 top brands and ship them right to your door. You keep what you like, you send back what you don't. If you don't like any of it, send it all back. Doesn't matter. And Trunk Club is not a subscription service. This is what appealed to me among many other things. I didn't want to constantly be getting dinged by things or have to deal with the headache of constantly getting boxes. It's not a subscription service. Shipping is always free and you have five days to try on the clothes. So, a couple points here. Number one, get started today. Go to trunkclub.com forward slash Tim. Try it out. You get premium clothes, expert advice, no work, no risk. That is a winning combo. And I have found some of my favorite espadrilles, shoes from them, bright green. Uh, I do like the color green. And they actually work. I've had so many compliments on these shoes. And more people ask me where I got them than any other pair of shoes I've ever had and uh, more shirts, I ended up keeping about, I would say three quarters of my box, which I did not expect to do. So go to trunkclub.com forward slash Tim and check it out.